Hello there, and welcome to Common Rider AA, the podcast where a restaurant is a restaurant, a bar is a bar, a muffin is not a cake, and a hot dog is not a sandwich. There's no arguing. I am the moral authority on all this, so shut the fuck up. Anyways, we're watching Common Rider Kiva, episodes 40 and 41. Yep, Anna and I and some mutual friends of ours were discussing the... No, no we're not talking. I already ended the argument. I am the moral authority on, all, on everything pedantic, all right? This is, we're now going to talk about nothing but Common Rider Kiva. I mean, sure, but the listeners may want some context. To, no, no, no context. All they need to know, I am the moral authority, and I declared it. But are you the intellectual authority? Intellectual authority was already assumed because it's me. Okay. Big brain here. Yeah. Who's who's the STEM major here? It's me. All right. So go go back to your little hidey hole English major. Yes. Uh but yeah, we watched episodes forty and forty-one of Common Rider Kiva. We're continuing to close in the home stretch of this season. It's still maintaining really good quality so far. What seems to be the final arc of the show. It it just wants to hit you with all the emotions every episode. Like, I I think some of them fall a little flat sometimes, but 90% of it fucking slays. We continue to get some pretty good fight scenes as well, and the character drama, while a little iffy at times, I, I think is pretty solid. For most of the iffy things, I can sort of, uh, like, headcanon my way around some of the things. Also, funnily enough, I I think we might be talking about slightly different things when it comes to, you know, little bits of character stuff we didn't completely buy, but let's let's get to it anyways. Yeah, uh, so we're going to be starting with episode 40, Encore, Nago Ixa Explosively Returns. Uh, It aired November 16th, 2008, and it was written by Toshiki Inoue and directed by Hidenori Ishida. I'm starting to think for all of Inoue's faults, he does have a plan in mind when he writes his his seasons, from what I can tell so far. He gives me the vibe similar to George Lucas with the prequel trilogy. I I like the prequel trilogy. I, I admit there are many flaws in it. But I, I can enjoy much of it. And episode three is like pretty up there in Star Wars movies I enjoy. But you you can tell that the overarching themes are better than the minutia in those movies. Yeah, I, I agree. Because if, if you tell somebody the story of the prequel trilogies, that that person will go, holy shit, those sound like the greatest movies ever about the corruption inherent to the system and the fall of a democracy and then they watch movies and it's like it's over anakin i have the high ground you underestimate my power don't try it Ah! i really love i I really love that entire mustafar scene especially the end when anakin is limbless on the ground on fire shouting at obi-wan that he hates him it's so sad yeah that, that makes it it actually makes me cry but yeah common writer kiva inoue and ishida episode 40 the episode begins with keisuke tackling the berserked kiva away from megami uh, no he wasn't berserk watch he was just going out for a hug uh that's what megami tries to tell him later but yeah Keisuke calls out Watu's name, which causes the latter to dehenshin and wonder aloud what just happened. Kengo yells out that this confirms that Watu was ultimately just another fangire. Confused and guilt-ridden, Watu runs off. Speaking of crying, this scene, Watu doesn't deserve this. Watu is a good boy. And he's, he got forced into this space, this berserk state because his brother Taiga ordered it, and that's just, ugh. dude, Taiga, what, what the fuck, man? Taiga thinks he's doing the right thing and helping his brother. Later, we see his end goal is he will marry Mio, and Watcher will be his right hand man, and he, he wants them all to be a big happy family, and that's the intent behind it. But what he's doing is 
ruining Wataru's life, making him go berserk and lose himself. Later, in Shima's gym, the BSO operatives are reporting to their boss. Kengo tells Shima that Kiva escaped because Keisuke interfered. Keisuke says that pursuing Kiva isn't necessary since Wataru's dual nature as a human Fangar hybrid means he'll eventually self-destruct. Megami has always been like this source of cheerfulness and stuff. And most of her scenes have been comedic in nature. And the ones that aren't are usually uh, related to Rook. But even then, they were never really as intense as with Yuri because she didn't have the personal feeling of loss that Yuri had. And I'm not saying this to say that Megami's a bad character. She's just a different character than Yuri. But in these episodes, she's so sad and confused. And I can't remember when. It might have been at the gym. She just goes, was that really what to do? I feel so bad for her. And like, you know, it's serious when the comic relief characters are dramatic and somber. But yeah, after they have this meeting in the gym, we get a cool shot of Keisuke looking upon a orange twilight sky and declaring to himself, Wataru Kurenai, I will definitely save you. And I think that was a very cool sort of contrast to how Keisuke was at the beginning of the season when he was fixated on defeating Kiva. Keisuke's so good these episodes. He is, yeah. He's fully turned the corner, and now he's unambiguously probably one of the best people in the, sh- in the series. Before, he was acted like he was, you know, the moral authority, like he was, you know, the big good. But now he's actually achieved it because he's made friends and formed bonds with all these people. I also love that when he was, uh, I don't know if I'm reading too much into this because I knew what happened next. But when he's talking with Shima about Wataru will self-destruct, there's no need to, you know, attack him. He's covering for Wataru, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but like I felt like I could see it on the actor's face. I felt like, uh, yeah, Keisuke Kato, like, I felt like I could feel like small cracks where uh, he was going from his, you know, standard emotionless look to uh, I have to make sure Wataru's safe while he was in the gym with Shima. Who, by the way, these episodes, he's just going full on uh, Caligula. Yeah, Shima's not doing too great. Yeah, okay. Uh, in a restaurant, Mio and Taiga are conversing about Wataru. Taiga informs Mio that now Wataru's human friends are alienated from him. He will have no choice but to join the Fangires as Taiga's right-hand man. Taiga goes on to say that once he and Mio are married, his life will be complete. Taiga's kind of dumb. He's kind of mad dumb. Because he's sort of forgotten all about... Wataru and Mio both confessing that they love each other. Like, he's like, I know earlier I said the only reason you couldn't love Wataru is because he was a human, and now he turns out he's actually a fangire. But forget about that. You're going to be my wife. Wataru's going to be my right-hand man. And those feelings don't exist anymore because I refuse to acknowledge them. Yeah, he's pretty dumb. I choose to think of it as a character trait of Taiga just being kind of dumb. In Wataru's house... Shizuka finds the soft boy passed out on a couch. She tries shaking him awake, and as he turns his head, we see his face is covered by goggles and a face mask, marking a relapse to his old self from the very start of the show. It's so sad, especially because I think the reason for it is inverted from the beginning of the show, because at the beginning of the show, he thought he was allergic to the world, at some points, even calling it dirty, which was, you know, a metaphor for his fear of the outside of others, except for, you know, people like Shizuka, Kivat. But now I think it's the reverse. I think he doesn't think the world is dirty. He thinks he's dirty right now and he doesn't want to contaminate anybody else, I think, is the metaphor being used here. But, you know, it still has the same result of putting up those physical barriers. In 1986, Yuri is looking out over a shipping channel. She hears a familiar voice and turns around to see Maya. When Maya tries asking about what Yuri wanted before the arms monsters interrupted last time, Yuri introduces herself as a BSO 
while Maya then introduces herself as the Queen of the Fangires. Yuri then declares that she will defeat Maya and pulls out the Ixa knuckle. But before she can hence Sheen, Otoya pops up, grabs her by the arm with a picnic basket, and tells her that they should have a picnic instead. He cooked the rice himself. He made those rice balls himself. And he's going to eat every single one of those. Maya then summarily disappears along with Otoya. I can't properly put into words how I feel about this love triangle because, like, it's interesting. I don't think I... I'm sure, I'm sure there are other examples of it, but I can't think of any off the top of my head where the switch has already happened, essentially. Otoya's basically just together with Maya right now. But Otoya's the only one who doesn't seem to realize that. Because he's, he's still acting like, and he wants to still be with Yuri because she's the first person he truly fell in love with. And the first person he's truly been with, like, she changed his entire world. But Maya is Maya. He doesn't want to cheat. He doesn't want to leave Yuri. But in all the ways that really matter, he already has left Yuri. Yeah, it's sad, but yeah. A little bit later, Otoya's having that picnic with Maya. He's... He just bites into a rice ball like, want one? She's just like, no, I don't. And he just takes, he has a, he has, he has taken one bite out of a pretty large rice ball. Then he looks at this other one that Maya refused and takes a bite out of it. And now he just has two like third Eden rice balls in his hands. (laughs) Uh, Maya remarks on how cute and innocent Yuri is. Otoya asks Maya to not hurt Yuri, and Maya agrees to that, again saying that she's already taken something more precious from Yuri than her life. Otoya looks just so confused at that, like, what the fuck is she talking about? Your penis, Otoya, that's what she's talking about. (laughs) As they're picnicking, King looks on and recognizes Otoya. As Otoya sort of walks off at some point, King stalks him and leaves behind a, a flaming trail of footprints. King's actions in this episode really interest me. Well, these two episodes, because he didn't need to bully the arms monsters into attacking Atoya. Like, straight up, he could have killed Atoya at any time and Atoya would be dead because he's the fucking king. But I think he doesn't want to lose to Maya. Because, you know, when he first came in, you know, pointed the sword at Maya, it's like, hey, are you sleeping with a human? He threw the sword away saying, if I killed you, that would mean I cared for you. He basically wants to kill Otoya and reclaim Maya without having to make it seem like he actually wants to. He, like, he needs to be the disaffected, mysterious king. Do you think he actually cares about Maya, albeit in sort of a a way an abusive boyfriend might care about his girlfriend? Or are you, do you think he, it's more like a status thing? I think it is a status thing because the, the king kind of isn't like any other Fangire we've met. He seems to hold Fangires to a different status, saying Fangires shouldn't feel love, they shouldn't feel desire, anything. I, I think all he really cares about is being the ideal of a Fangire as he sees it, and the ideal king. And he needs Maya for that, so like, if something is taking away his toy, his status symbol, I don't think he holds enough love in his heart even be comparable to some, like, well, abusive partners in general, like, if you're in an abusive relationship, you know, please seek help, uh, battered woman's shelter, family, the police, if it's bad enough. But, like, those people still have a twisted form of love but i don't think the i don't think king has enough love in him to even feel that in 2008 taiga rides his motorcycle in front of a car shima is riding in they both stop and talk to each other shima opens things up by saying that he'd invite taiga to lunch but he remembered that taiga doesn't like to eat 
Tyga retorts by saying he never liked the food that Shima gave him. And Shima goes on to say that he took in Tyga because Tyga's uh, mother asked him to, and that he tried being a father in his own way. Tyga responds that he was no more than than an experiment to Shima, which was why he ultimately ran away. So this is interesting and gives, you know, a lot of context to their relationship that I've talked about how I just need all the context. But this is good. This is enough to give us like a decent conversation. But there are a couple of options here. There, There are really two possibilities here. Either Shima did treat Taiga as an experiment, but like thought he was treating him like a parent, but just had that inherent, you know, blue sky organization-ness to him and was like, well, even though this is a child that I have to raise, I have to like study him to further understand it's a fangire. And it, you know, was not good for Taiga. Or Shima did actually do his best, but Taiga still felt that way. And either way, it's really sad. Especially because Shima refuses to acknowledge it or say anything about it. Because there is a difference between something actually being done to you and feeling the effects of something being done to you. And even if a person's intent isn't to hurt you, if they do hurt you, I feel a person is still entitled to an apology. Shima gave me some pretty big old Gendo Ikari vibes these couple of episodes. Oh yeah, at one point, I'm pretty sure at one point he just starts laughing maniacally, if I'm correct. And making steeple fingers and all that. But yeah, Shima changes the subject by offering to join forces in destroying Kiva. Taiga refuses and says that he will protect and love Wataru. The the faint guys are kind of making a decent case here with uh, the Blue Sky organization being, all right, let's murder Wataru even if we have to take team up with Shima, meaning we have to murder Wataru even if we have to team with the Fangires. And Taiga being, what? No, he's my fucking brother, asshole. Later, Shizuka's yelling for Wataru in front of his house. We see that the front gate is chained up and covered in barbed wire. Keisuke walks up and asks Shizuka what the deal is. Shizuka tells him that Wataru has gone back to being a shut-in. Keisuke then yells for Wataru, cut to the inside of Wataru's workshop, and we see him working on a violin and muttering, shut up, to his friend's voices. Uh, no, Wataru, stop. No, don't go into... Don't go back into co- into isolation. Please, stop. He's going back to Hikikomori land. In Shima's gym, Kingo is being admonished by Shima for his failure in defeating Kiva. Shima goes on to say that Keisuke will resume being the primary user of the Ixa system. Kingo is naturally pissed off at himself and uh, everything. Yeah, Sh- Shima's just doing... Whatever the fuck crosses his mind at this point. In 1986, the arms monsters are still on the run from King. King corners them in a misty forest and blasts them all prone with an energy shockwave. He tells the trio that he will spare them if they kill Otoya. See, he's trying to get plausible deniability. Oh, I, I, I don't care about Maya. I didn't kill Otoya. It was those three creatures that... I turned into trophies. In 2008, a new fangire, the Sea Moon, which is kind of a jellyfish fangire. Uh, yes, uh, the melancholic collaboration of the grapes and the radiator. When did Whitest Kids You Know come out with the grapist sketch? Ah, <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I think we need to look this up. Uh, 2009 is when it was uploaded on YouTube. Okay, what it was, uh, Whitest Kids You Know, Season 3, Episode 14, came out uh, April 28th, 2009. So, no, this this predated The Grapist, so it's just coincidence. Or did this inspire The Grapist? Oh my god, are the Whitest Kids You Know fans of, uh, fans of Common Rider Kiva enough that in 2008-9... Before the internet was good, they got the extra materials to know that the Sea Moon Fangire's true name. 
was the melancholic collaboration of the grapes and the radiator. So bad, but it makes so much sense. Uh, guys, if, if you don't know what we're talking about, look up the whitest kids you know, grapist sketch. It It's a grape mascot that who yells to children that he's going to tie them to a radiator and grape them. I see no problem with this. Do you not want the commercial? No, of course we want the commercial. Of course, of course. <laughs> the whitest kids you know were fucking hilarious. Uh, they're pretty good. Uh, anyway, the Sea Moon Fangire is rampaging about with Kengo in pursuit of it. Kengo headsheens into Ixa and beats up the Sea Moon without much effort. I don't think we've mentioned this before, but when Kengo henshins, he presses the Ixa knuckle with his foot, which is interesting. Well, against his ankle, I think. Which is interesting in two ways. One, because... Like, he hurt his hand, so, you know, maybe he just doesn't want to do that motion with his hand. And second of all, it just makes him unique to the other Ixa users. Cuts him apart. Before any lasting damage can be done to the Sea Moon, though, uh, Bishop walks in and assumes his own Fangire form. He proceeds to beat Ixa with a combination of scale powder blasts and sword strikes. Keisuke runs in and notices the bind Ixa is in. He's not... He's not... At a level to fight a royal fangire. A checkmate four member, right. Meanwhile, Wataru senses the ruckus through the bloody rose, though he willfully ignores it. Keisuke calls Wataru's cell phone, but Wataru tosses his phone aside. Kivat answers it instead, and Keisuke's voice entreats Wataru to get to the fight. Back at the scene of combat, Bishop smacks Kengo out of the Ixa armor, and the knuckle comes clattering underneath Bishop's boot. Just as it looks as though Bishop might destroy the knuckle, Keisuke tackles him away, but since Keisuke is only a human matched against the Fangire of the Checkmate 4, he gets knocked aside pretty easily. Bishop, during this, says, I'm gonna crush you until I hear something snap. Yep, and he snaps his fingers just to give it a little bit of illustration. After Keisuke tells him that this wasn't, he hasn't seen Ix's full power, uh, Bishop then sort of takes his foot off of Ke- off of Keisuke, and then moves to execute Kengo. But his sword, the sword's fatal thrust, gets parried by Kiva using the Zonbot. So fucking good, because you don't, you don't know Wataru is coming. You don't see him henshin. The first you know, see him is when Bishop's sword stops. The camera goes up the sword, and you see, that's right, Zonbot. Bishop runs away in response to this, and Kiva turns back into Wataru. Wataru tells the K-Dogs, Kengo and Keisuke, that this will be the last time he fights his Kiva, since his Fangire blood makes him too much of a danger to his friends. Keisuke Nago, his actor is Keisuke Kato, a K and a K. Kengo Aritate's uh, actor is Kohei Kumai. A K and a K. They're the K boys. <laughs> They're the rap duo of the of the decade. Next scene. Waters at his house. He cages up Kivat and Tats a lot and hides the bloody rose in an attempt to keep from ever becoming Kiva again. Kivat and Tatsalot are sentient living creatures, and he locked them in a goddamn cage. Yeah, it, it's implied they eat too. <laughs> Tatsalot's like five years old, basically, mentally, and he's just locked in a cage with this grumpy old man. At Café Maldemore, Keisuke walks in and notices Megami slumped on the bar. Keisuke rattles off various platitudes to cheer her up. It's always darkest before dawn. If we stand alone, we'll fall together. But it's so funny, he's just, it's like he's reading out of a book of platitudes. He probably, he probably looked them up right before he came in. Megami asks him why he stood up for Wataru, and being unsure himself, Keisuke just answers, Wild Instinct? That's what the subtitles I got said. Yeah, it's a gut feeling. Uh, cut to the front of Wataru's house, where Shizuka's weeping for her boy. Megami and Keisuke are there, too. Keisuke produces some bolt cutters and removes the barbed wire and padlocks from the gate. It's all alone. Watu is serious about his new 
hikikomori lifestyle, so he booby-trapped his entire house. Shizuka, Megami, and Keisuke are no match for the traps, much like the wet bandits, and they are forced out of the house as Wataru sits in his bathroom. Keisuke literally falls downstairs that have been replaced with a smooth board and slides right out of the house. Oh, it's so, it's so glorious. In 1986, Yuri makes another attempt at fighting Maya. She henshines into Proto-Ixa and tries fighting Maya, but Maya responds only by dodging. When Yuri-Ixa demands to know why she won't fight, Maya tells her that she doesn't want to kill her. Yuri punches through Maya, but Maya just evaporates into a flurry of black rose petals. Which apparently is just a thing that Maya can do. Mio does it too, as well. Also, Maya had a scratch on her face from when Yuri was attacking her, so Yuri did land at least one hit. In 2008, Kisuke has found the Sea Moon Fangire and has a pretty epic henshin moment, in which he just directly goes into Rising Ixa form. Bishop also shows up to back up the Sea Moon, and that begs the question, is the, are, are the Sea Moon and Bishop boyfriends? <laughs> that, that fucking came up! That that stuck up on me like Mio's blunt force trauma narcolepsy. I felt I felt like a bad writer just fucking clocked me in the head to keep me out of a fight scene with that. Oh my god! <laughs> I broke her. I did it, everyone. Yes, yes, the Sea Moon Vanguard's Bishop's boyfriend. <laughs> Bishop always shows up to his rescue. <laughs> it's either that or. The Sea Moon's like a direct subordinate of Bishop or Bishop's right hand man. But I, I think Bishop just wants to kill Ixa right now. By the way, do you think he knows that Ixa like switched users between those two fights? Like, because he was like, oh, we meet again, Ixa, as he approaches Keisuke, who he has not fought before. Uh, that's a good question. I, I think he could intuit it pretty easily because they have different fighting styles and. I'm sure he knows that Ixa can be used by multiple people. It has been used by multiple people. Anywho, Ixa is about to KO the Sea Moon, but he struggles against Bishop. Taiga himself joins the phrase as Saga and double teams Ixa with Bishop. Do you think if Taiga didn't show up, that uh, Keisuke would have been able to beat it, to beat uh, Bishop? Rising is pretty powerful. Like it's it's matched. Fangire on Checkmate 4 level before. I think Keisuke had a pretty good chance, and we see next episode, he could he could do it, yeah. If Saga didn't come in, then yeah, he may have stood a pretty good chance. Yeah, he saw that Keisuke was being homophobic to Bishop at the Sea Moon Fangire. I was like, oh, hell no, love is love, baby. As long as it's between two Fangires or two humans. <laughs> While this is going down, uh, Wataru struggles to ignore the reverberations of the Bloody Rose and the pleading of Kivat and Tatslot. The episode ends with Ixa being subjected to Saga's signature move in which he jumps through the symbol in the air and hangs his opponent, and Wataru covering his ears as he symbolically shifts into his child self. And that's the episode. For something called... Uh... Nago Ixa explosively returns. His return wasn't really all that impressive. Uh, he had a cool little speech as, just before he henshined, and, uh, and Keisuke has just kind of become a better person at this point, so, yeah. Yeah, but he, he came in, it's like, all right, Keisuke's gonna fucking kick ass and take names. Then Saga shows up and just fucking helps Bishop beat the ever-loving crap out of him. Uh, but yeah, who's your writer of the week? Keisuke. Same. Like, this episode, it was like, hey, guess what? I am now going to become everyone's favorite character. I'm going to become the biggest fucking bro in the world. He, he looked off into the sunset and said, Kurenai Watu, I will save you. Yeah, Keisuke is my writer, too. He, he's, a, he's a badass in these episodes. Uh, he still comes across as being kind of eccentric and old-fashioned, but that really kind of just makes him more endearing at this point instead of just being the butt of the joke all the time. Because I can still see this Keisuke 
trying to steal Megami's good luck fortune from uh, that they got from like an automated uh, fortune machine. But you know, but I can also see him seeing that Megami is sad and trying to cheer her up. Uh, what's your monster? It's going to be Shima, actually, because he, he's he's kind of losing his marbles. And, you know, seeing how Taiga felt about living with him and it, he, he's he's giving off some pretty bad vibes right now. Yeah, that would be a that would have been a good pick for me as well. But I I hovered a little bit on giving it to Wataru because he's having like a, a mopey episode. But I'll give it to the Sea Moon Fengar suit design. It I think the the dome head looks pretty dumb. It's a little dopey. But yeah, like I I don't like Wataru in this episode, and I'm not happy he's going through this, but I understand it's good for the story, you know? Sure. For for you know, for the monster of the week, like I, I would have trouble giving it to him even though I don't like it, because I respect it as a story beat. Uh, to the tarot corner, I'm giving the upright hanged man to Watru and his refusal to fight. Uh, according to Labyrinthos.co, the hanged man card reflects a particular need to suspend certain action. As a result, this might indicate a certain period of indecision or uncertainty. Yeah. Oh, I just realized something we forgot to actually talk about, but when, uh... When Megami go, um, goes into Watcher's house, she's like, oh, were, were you worried I was scared of you? No, I just thought you were coming in for a hug. Like, I, I think that bit of acting was just very good. I just want to call that out. Uh, uh, her actor, uh, Nana Yana, Yanagisawa, like, I, I think she, I think she did, really did that uh, scene justice. Because I, I could feel her, like, sort of breaking and returning to being afraid a little bit. But trying to power through because she knows it's what to do and that he needs her help. Yeah, that's a worthy mention. Uh, what's your episode rating? Uh, I'm I'm gonna give it a seven point five out of ten, not because it was bad, but because this is very much a connection episode. Like next episode is very good, and it wouldn't have happened without this episode. It's you know something that needs to happen, you know, but. I'm giving it an 8 out of 10, where the streak of good episodes is continuing. I was admittedly turned off a bit by Watcher's Dark Knight of the Soul, but seeing Keisuke step back into the Ixa armor was great. So yeah, now we're moving on to episode 41 of Kamen Rider Kiva, Lullaby, Release the Heart. This episode aired November 23rd, 2008. Written by Toshiki Inoue, and you guessed it, Hidenori Ishida. Although I look, I looked ahead a little bit, and this is the end of Ishida's run of directing until the last three episodes. What? So you know, that's just sort of something interesting to know. Interesting. All right. Uh, we pick up with Keisuke about to get axed by Bishop and Saga, but Kengo comes to the rescue with an assault rifle that is presumably loaded with the anti-fangire rounds. I mean, and, he, and grenades. He also just straight up shoots grenades because it has a grenade attachment. Kengo helps Keisuke up and they retreat. After the OP, Wataru is seen in his workshop with Kivat and Tatsalot still caged up. Wataru restates his unwillingness to ever become Kiva again and says that a half-fangire like himself has no place in the world. I have so many things I want to say. I need to save it to the end, though, so that way we can have the full context of it. But, oh, man, Wataru, just... I love you, man. It's all right. It'll get better. I'm reminded a bit of a uh, of an Overwatch fan comic in which Genji is talking to Zenyatta, and he's like, I don't know what I am anymore. And Zenyatta just slaps him and says, Genji, you're a fucking cyborg ninja. That's fucking awesome. I just kind of want to say that to to Wataru. You're Wataru. You're a half fake guy. You have all their power and none of their weaknesses. You aren't dependent on eating human souls. That's fucking awesome. I mean, apparently, not even fangires. Because Shinji from the episode that made me cry. By the way, so surprised that I remember Shinji's name, the bear fangire. 
Like, he survived for 30 years without eating a human soul, uh, presumably. Yeah, Omura lasted a while, too. Yeah, the frog Fangire. And, like, just based on other Fangires not having an instinct to go berserk, I think he might have just had, like, PTSD or something for from loud noises. It's weirdly inconsistent. Like, do they need human souls to survive? Can they just get by on... Fa- they never answer this, and it's annoying. But anyway, uh, Keisuke and Shima are later discussing Kengo's discharge from the BSO. Shima reveals that firing Kengo was at first a secret assessment of his character, but it will apparently stick since Kengo has no self-control. Shima goes on to say that the duty of eliminating Kiva will fall to Keisuke, Keisuke protests this and says that he'd much rather save Wataru instead. Shima alludes to his failed parental relationship with Taiga, but Keisuke responds by saying that he won't be like Shima. As they have this discussion, Kengo has been eavesdropping from behind a pillar, and he just kind of later walks through a crowd and, and calls himself the worst. I, I love Shima. At least I loved Shima, but... Shima, right now, you are just the worst. You, you are being a not good person right now, bud. You deserve a finger wagging. You're going to get a second uh, monster of the week. I hope I'm, I'm spoiling it right now. You, you're going into timeout. You aren't getting a gold star. Santa's leaving coal and you're stalking. Honestly, Shima probably knew that Kengo was behind that pillar. I was like, oh yeah, this will fuck with him. Uh, cut to Taiga w- talking to Maya at the side of a river. Taiga tells Maya that Watcher will have to live as a fangire from now on, and that she shouldn't worry since he'll be protecting Wataru. Taiga then changes the subject to his inheritance, the Dark Kiva armor. He mentions that Maya has the ability to bestow Dark Kiva's power upon him, and that he expects to be fully coronated by the time he marries Mio. So, this is that dichotomy that every, everyone, except for, you know, at the end, is telling Wataru, you have to live as a, you can live as a human, or you have to live as a fangire. They're not realizing that it's a fake dichotomy. Watru isn't human. Watru isn't a fangire. He's both. Like he he's a he's a unique being and he doesn't have to live as one or the other. He all he needs to do is live as himself. He's a dampire. He's like Alucard. I, I always I always pronounce it dampire. It's dampire. Eh, you're wrong, but it's okay. Oh. In nineteen eighty six, Sotoyu is getting a massage from Ricky and Ramon. Since King ordered them to kill Otoya, Ricky pulls out a comically oversized 10,000-ton hammer, but he can't seem to bring himself to kill Otoya, so he just starts swinging it at a fake mosquito. Later, in the Karenai house's bathroom, Otoya is bathing when Jiro comes in. Jiro offers to wash Otoya's back, which... Otoya at first thinks Jiro's there to have sex with him, because he's like... Oh, I, I, I'm not into this kind of stuff. And they're just like, ah, just let me wash her back. Oh, no, that, that's kind of an intimate thing to do in Japanese culture. Yeah, but it's not sticking your penis up another dude's butt, Adam. As Otoya waxes poetic about forging fiery masculine bonds between bros in the bath, Jiro assumes wolfen form and is poised to kill Otoya, but he's somehow too moved by Otoya's words to go through with it. That's opened my eye. Even though they all got off to a rocky start, Atoya helped them take down Rook. He helped them avenge their families and their entire species. Yeah, Man, that's true. That like that definitely has to count for a lot. In 2008, Shizuka, Megami, and Keisuke are wondering how to get Watsuru out of his house. As they are, as they're doing that, Boss offers a solution. Love. Either that or he's suggesting building an AI in order to find the correct answer. Cut to Wataru's workshop. Mio seemingly teleports inside in a flurry of black rose petals. She treats Wataru to a meal she cooked. It's so uncomfortable watching that. 
I love Mio, but Mio, don't ask your boyfriend with social anxiety to kill his brother, i.e. your fiancé. As Wataru eats, she asks him about when he plans on killing Taiga. Wataru rightfully denies having ever agreed to kill his brother, and he asks Mio to leave. And I'm like, girl, Mio... Even if my brother is an evil bastard who, who's all about tyranny and treating humanity as cattle, I, asking me to kill him is a pretty tall order. I get that Mio's under a lot of stress, but man, this Mio's unrecognizable to the Mio when we first met her, or the Mio when her and Watcheru started pseudo-dating even. It's just uncomfortable to watch her be, like, try to force this man to kill his brother. Like, she's basically trying to, like, entrap him, you know? Like, you promised to kill him, remember? And it's like, no, I didn't. Please stop coming to my house with surprisingly good bread rolls. Did you get these from Red Lobster? But that's besides the point. <laughs> I just imagine a scenario in which Water's about to turn in for the night and she's just in his bed in lingerie. <laughs> just, she starts initiating foreplay and she and watcher's like oh talk dirty to me and she whispers in his ear stab your brother <laughs> uh it's so good she's just getting so horny for murder <laughs> she's just trying to create a, a pavlovian response <laughs> make him associate killing taiga with sex with her <laughs> Starts hunting other people named Taiga. <laughs> she creates the Taiga killer. She event he eventually kills all the Taigas in Japan. And then he has to move on to actual Tigers. <laughs> you beat me to it. Yeah. He he hunts down the entire race to extinction. <laughs> it's the only way he can finish. So. Speaking of Overwatch fanfiction, you mentioned the one with Zenyatta slapping Genji. One I saw was one where uh, Widowmaker was, you know, joined Overwatch, but still had all her programming. And she was together with Tracer, and they realized she could only orgasm when she finally finished assassinating someone. No! And the entire story is about them setting up these situations where they're allowed to both have sex and kill a person. My God! Oh, this is this is a dirty episode, and just because of this one. <laughs> oh fuck, Blizzard though. But man, they <laughs> it's staffed with so many horrible people, and I wish the people that work there who aren't terrible. Good luck either reforming the company or finding good jobs elsewhere where they don't have to be in hostile working environments. Back to nineteen eighty six. The arms monsters have decided that instead of killing Otoya, they'll skip town and go their separate ways in order to elude King. It goes poorly. They bid each other farewell and run off into separate directions. Ramon, however, runs into King, who notices that they've declined the opportunity he gave them. Ramon goes into merman form while King becomes Dark Kiva. For his trouble, Ramon gets sealed by King into the form of the Basha Magnum for use as a decoration in Castle Duran. Ricky comes running up, presumably to aid his buddy. I, I thought that was a cut. Or like, we finished with Ramon, now we're cutting to uh, Ricky running away. No, it, Ricky ran toward that, toward the spot. I, I thought it was just a very creative cut with... Uh... The king swirling his cape in front of the camera. Then when it ended, he was in a different spot. No, that's not how I took it. But like, where Ricky was, he was in a field, but they were surrounded on all four sides by woods when uh, Ramon was taken. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. The, the cinematography seemed to suggest that Ricky was trying to come to R Ramon's aid, but... Eh. I mean, he, he was shocked when he saw King, and he was like, oh, man... Now I guess I'm dying. Yeah, Ricky has the same thing done to him. He gets turned into the Doga Hammer, leaving Jiro as the only arms monster still free. 
All right, so the forms that they become, you know, they're weapons, but like kind of like compressed a little bit to actually look like trophies. Yeah, they're it, compacted. Yeah. Like they turn into that, they turn into that form when they exit the castle and then they expand out into the main, into their weapon form, which sort of gives the implication that they're still trophies. They're just able to act like uh, act about like humans, but like their true form is unfortunately the trophy now. Like at, at the at the very least, it changed them forever. Because I'm pretty sure that uh, Jiro couldn't turn into a sword before uh, that happened before being uh, trophyized. Yeah, that might be true. In 2008, Wataru was still in his violin crafting solitude when he hears some burning, passionate rock and roll from outside his house. This scene always makes me cry. Yeah, and the acting's good here, too. Wataru opens the door and sees Kengo rocking out with Keisuke by his side. Kengo asks to be led inside so he could tell Wataru something. Wataru permits this, and we cut to the interior of his house. Kengo's using his Kansai accent again. The, the one, the one that you know, apparent, but the one that he faked because that because he wanted to be more person, like personal with people, and like you know, wanted people to like like him a bit more, you know. But and he's dressed a bit more as a rocker instead of a punk. And like because when he used that accent, when he was being that person, even if it was maybe quote unquote fake, it was the person that. He was that person when he made all his friends, and it's just Kengo Ryu. Ah, oh, I love it. Continue so we can find out why he did it because so good. Uh, before Kengo can say anything, Wataru asks Keisuke to promise to kill him in case his fangire blood causes him to go berserk again. Keisuke reluctantly agrees. Kengo then gets onto his thing. He prostrates himself and apologizes for being a jerk ass. He said he goes on to say that he was actually always aware that he was no good at being a musician and that he was actually kind of relieved when it turned out his arms or hands somehow got damaged. That was good. Ah. Like, you know, we mentioned before, like we both saw that he wasn't actually angry at the others. He was angry at the world and at himself and just lashing out so he had a target. Yeah. And just when Shima, you know, said that he's the worst, when Ken was able to recognize that, you know, he was acting like a little shit, he was able to accept that, yeah, okay, I'm not a good person, but that doesn't mean I can't be a good friend. And this shit's, oh God, it's so good and meaningful writing. This is why I hate it when people dismiss things as kids shows not just for you know common rider super sentai and stuff like that media that's targeted at kids could still be pretty good just objectively yeah things like miraculous ladybug or uh she-ra uh my little pony all those things you know kids shows but they have such amazing messages and themes and writing and yeah, I, I think I'd go as far as to say that kids' media has an obligation to be good because these are formative pieces of fiction that kids are consuming, and you you want it to be high quality. You want it to have very good themes, very good messages, and you don't want to beat them over the head with it, like with trite stuff like it's okay to be unique or be yourself or just silly overdone messages like that. You need to not be afraid to introduce kids to complexities in the world. And I think common writer seems to be pretty good at that. Look at cartoons. Children's cartoons almost always just slap like She-Ra, My Little Pony, Gravity Falls, uh, Steven Universe. Those are great cartoons and they're all quote unquote for kids. And then you look at adult cartoons, things that, People decide, like, oh, yeah, this is what adults want. And you get, like, Family Guy, Rick and Morty, which I accept that some people find Rick and Morty funny, but it's so cynical, and you have to admit that it's cynical. But, like, all 
adult cartoons are all cynical crap sack worlds. It's like, no, hope is good storytelling. Good things happening is good storytelling. Yeah, or good people powering through bad things to make their lives better. That's good, too. Even though the world is it's all sunshine and roses, there's there's still stuff worth fighting for. Yeah, like people seem to equate darker and edgier as more realistic and therefore good. It's like, oh yeah, this person is so flawed and he's a giant asshole. He's such a good realistic protagonist. But no, people can be good people and still Steven Universe. I gave it I brought up as an example. Steven is realistic. But he's not grimdark and like he does go through traumas and they mention things like that, like in the and it's just good stuff because kids media isn't bogged down by the grittiness that adult media has been bogged down by so so much lately. I think there has been a pretty good like upswing on, you know, more hopeful stuff coming out like The Good Place is very good. And its entire theme is about hope and people can become better. I just wanted to mention The Good Place because it's such a good fucking show. Yeah. But yeah, uh, Watcher thanks Kengo for his apology. And Kengo asks if they can rebuild their friendship. Okay, props to Koji Seto here, Watcher's actor. Watu smiles sadly and says that he can't be anyone's friend since he's just half of a person. The performances have always been good, but lately the performances have just kicked it up and have like maximum overdrive. Totally. And it's like, oh God, like this, this shit made me so sad. Like the writing, the acting, the directing, the way that they don't traditionally cut the scene because they, they, they kind they match cut it basically with Watcher in the same position, but then you realize he's talking with Taiga now. By the way, I, I kind of thought that was a Toya for a bit. I thought he was talking to a ghost of a Toya, but I was like, oh wait, no, that's Taiga. Uh cuts to later in that day, and Watcher was having a similar conversation with Taiga. Taiga again gives the spiel that Watcher was a fangire deep down and that humans are just cattle. He goes on to say that living as a Fangar would be what would be what their mother would want. Watu denies all of this and just walks off. But it kind of explicitly isn't, man. You're, like your mom gave you to a human to raise, and then raised Watu among humans as a human. <laughs> that night, Watu has kind of a creepy dream in which he's running across a dark plane as the voices of his child self and Maya can be heard playing hide-and-seek. They went went all out on the metaphor of the cinematography. And it's not creepy when you get the full picture, but... And I I did have a hard time making that out as Maya's voice, though, but... eh. It it took me a second, because it had the reverb, you know? In 1986, Yuri walks into the Karenai house. She notices the bloody rose on a table... She picks it up, examines it, and looks as though she's about to play it, but before she can bring the bow across the strings, Maya pops up and tells Yuri to put the bloody rose down. It's not made for your hands. If you don't have strong enough violin energy, if you try to play that violin with such low violin energy, it might rip a hole in space-time. Yuri has negative violin energy, if you remember. When she used the Black Star. When she's when she's that, she killed fish. And that and that thing wasn't even optimized for like bringing out violin energy potential. <laughs> like how much death and destruction could she just cause if she used if she used the bloody rose? Oh god. I think Maya might have just saved the entire city. Yuri henshins into Proto-Ixa and Maya assumes her Fangire form. They then fight a bit, during which Yuri gets knocked out of the house and into the backyard. Ixa Yuri tries landing a rider punch on Maya, but she gets intercepted by King and blasted out of the Ixa armor with the knuckle falling to the ground. I find it so funny, yet sad, that 
1986 folks are so outclassed. Yeah. Like, oh, man. They generally just have foot soldiers who armed with knives that extended to whips and are cool and all, but they don't really kill a fangires that often. Yeah, I mean, like, Ixa in its proto-mode, like, it can kill a standard fangire, but, oh man, can it... They needed to give Rook... They needed to give Rook kidney stones before they could even, like, inconvenience him. And, like, and they also required the help of a wolf and a merman and a franken, you know? That is true. Otoya runs in and picks up the knuckle. King asks Otoya why he's hanging out with another dude's wife, and Otoya tells him that it's because he's captivated by Maya in a romantic sense. Man, just the look when Ma- Maya just sort of looks shocked, because I this that's the first real time that Otoya has said it. Because the entire time he's protesting, he's like, no, Yuri, I love you. I love you. He's saying to Maya, don't hurt Yuri. I'm with Yuri, so we shouldn't meet anymore. But now he's saying, I'm fascinated with her. I love her. And it's it unlocks a dam, basically. King laughs at this and says that humans and fangires cannot love each other. Otoyu refutes this by saying that it doesn't matter whether they're human or fangire, What's important is one's soul. He's heard the music in Maya's soul, and she's heard his. This is so good. Because Atoya has the answer. He has the answer for Wataru, and it's going to be passed down through the generations to him. Interspersed with this scene is Wataru having that dream in which he's playing hide-and-seek with his mother. Maya finds him and tells him that it doesn't matter whether he's human or Fangire. All that matters is that he should just believe in himself. Yeah, Watru isn't half a person. He's not half one thing and half another. He's not a human with a demon inside him. He's not Naruto. He's himself. All, he's not. He's one person. He's one whole being. So do, do you think this is like a memory that Watru forgot about or repressed? Or is that like Maya speaking to him through like mother, like... Uh, mother-son, like, psychic fangire communication. I want to say it's the latter, like, when he had that vision of her before. I, it's hard to say for sure, though. Wataru sort of regains consciousness with the front gate to his house open and with newfound resolve as he hears the bloody rose's strings reverberate. He uncages Kivat and Tatsalot and runs off to the scene of the fight that we're about to describe. Elsewhere, Keisuke has found the Sea Moon Fangire. He headsheens into Rising Ixa and, inca- and incapacitates the Sea Moon, but yet again, Bishop comes to back up the Sea Moon. They both get some good hits in on each other, but Ixa proves victorious and forces his Bishop into retreating. He fucking forced a checkmate for to retreat. I'm so proud of him. Ixa tries pursuing, but the Sea Moon lassos him with its tentacles and flings him away. However, Watu walks up and blocks the Sea Moon's advance. Before he can henshin, though, Taiga appears and asks if this means Watu was siding with humanity. Watu tells his brother that he doesn't want to live as a fangire or a human, but as himself. Watu then henshins into Emperor Kiva. So fucking. Good. Dismayed by this, Taiga headsheens into Saga and summons a whole fucking armada of giant UFO-like cigarks. Seeing the Sea Moon as a third wheel, he commands one of the UFOs to laser beam it to death. A very benevolent ruler the Fangires have. <laughs> it's it's kind of funny. <laughs> just think about it. It's just like, I don't know who this man is, but I, am ju- I just want him to leave. <laughs> Kiva then fights the armada and defeats them all with some sword beams from the Zombot. Saga then draws his rapier and advances on him. We, the episode ends at 1986, where things have conveniently moved to a derelict warehouse, somehow. Are you telling me that Karina Toya and the king, a man who looks like David Bowie from Labyrinth, a man who looks like the goddamn Goblin King, didn't? A look at, go look at each other, one another and say, 
It should be in the middle of a warehouse. That'll make it cooler, right? Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. King orders Baia to kill Otoya, but she refuses. Yeah, she, she, she steps out from behind Otoya and is firmly on his side. Angered by the sudden revelation that Maya loves Otoya, King blasts Otoya with an energy wave, but Jiro drops from the ceiling and tries to fight King. King gives Jiro the same treatment as the other two arms monsters. He henchings into Dark Kiva and seals Jiro into the form of the Garlu Saber. Alright, so, uh, this is so significant for Jiro because Jiro could have run. Like, he didn't need to do this. Like, he was kind of home free. Yeah. Like, him and his friends made the deal. Yeah, one of us might survive if all three of us run, and Jiro was lucky. And the king was now focused on Atoya, but he came back to avenge his friends and to save Atoya. And that means so much. Yeah. The episode ends with Otoya becoming Proto Ixa and charging Dark Kiva amidst a bunch of explosions at that. Yeah. And also, Maya's crown, yeah. like telling him not to do it, which one of the things I didn't really buy that well because, like, it's a pretty hard turn between how Maya usually is to now being filled with emotion. Yeah, this is the most emotion we've ever seen from her. Yeah, like even reuniting with her children when she, I made the comment that she's much more emotional. Like she does not nearly as emotional here, but I, I can kind of buy it as it being kind of like a rebound or like a snapback of like she's been emotionless for so long. And now she loves somebody and someone loves her. And so all those feelings are bubbling out. She just doesn't know how to control them. And she's so scared for the first person she's ever loved will be killed by this man directly because of her. Therein ends episode 41 of Common Rider Kiva. Uh, on to our ratings. Who's your writer of the week? I'm going to say Otoya. Because okay. he, he, he did well. Like he, 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 you know, talked about how good friends he felt he was with the arms monsters. Like it showed their bonds of friendship. He said that he loves Maya in like his own way. He, I just think it was a good episode for him. And in the end, he charged in in order to avenge his friend. Right. My writer of the week is Wataru just for getting his shit together and getting his heroic second wind as it were in which he basically reaffirms his identity as a hero and all that who's your monster has to be king like you also have king but like it, he, he he killed the he trophy he turned the monster trio into trophies you know i like you said i gave it to king as well he there isn't really much to his character he he just he doesn't seem to have any motivation for being a xenophobic tyrant. I, I don't know. He's just not a very compelling villain. Yeah, like, I can read stuff into it, like his desire to become the ideal behind it, uh, like behind a fangire and the king, but like, it's, the story's not about him. It's about Atoya and Maya and Yuri, like especially in 1986. Right. Terracona! I'm giving an upright judgment to this episode. Upright judgment, or judgment when upright, can signify reconciliation and moving forward in life. The reconciliation part can be, can be applied to either Kingo trying to be Watu's friend again, or Watu reconciling with the fact that he's half Fangire. It's a pretty good thing, because that, that moment was just like the crux of this episode, you know? Like, I... That's why, for my episode rating, I'm giving it a 10 out of 10. I, I love that message of you're not half of something. You're the entirety of something. Like that. Like there's, there's this uh, uh, Final Fantasy The City of Fanfic, uh, Shards of Memory, where like the two central characters are Cloud and Terra. And throughout the story, Terra thinks about herself as a human with a Esper inside of her. But she's not. She's half Esper. She doesn't have a beast inside her. Like, just like Watcher doesn't have a monster inside of him. It's all him. And he has to know this in order to control it. 
Uh, my episode rating is still pretty positive, 7 out of 10. I didn't think Watcher's relapse into Hikikomoriism and his identity crisis was all that compelling. The resolution to it was good, but eh. But other than that, seeing Kiva slash through the armada of Sagarks was pretty cool. Yeah, we got to see the uh, mother Sagarks. Yeah, like a mothership. Yeah. They're, they're so neat. I, I wish we got more info on like the other demon races besides the Fangire and the Wolfen, you know? Because like, we barely have anything on the Kivats, the Mermen, and the, uh, and the Franken. And we got nothing on the Sagarks. Uh, but that brings us to the end of the episode, folks. Uh, Anna, plug your shit, girl. The podcast that I'm planning on releasing, it's entered a bit of a hiatus, so not going to plug that for a little while. Uh, Adam, you have things to actually plug? Uh, yeah, Pokemon Primeval continues with our second season, Apocalypse Now. It's an actual play Pokemon-themed uh, TTRPG podcast in which we sort of posit what the world of Pokemon would have been like or will be like across different eras. It's good. It doesn't just have the best punny title in the world. Apocalypse Now is also just good. Yay. A totally non-biased opinion. I mean, I barely think of you as a friend, so <laughs> obviously, so it's completely unbiased. Of course. I'm just kidding. I love you, Adam. Sure. Uh, but other than that, you can find us on Twitter at... He's the most dismissive sure ever. <laughs> I feel like you don't actually believe I love you. <laughs> Uh, you can find us on Twitter at double underscore common. We're on Anchor, and they sent us about just about at uh, they shoot us off at every direction onto at pretty much every podcast platform. You're probably listening to us on one such platform now, and uh, that's about it. Ready to hench out of here? That's right. Hen, shake. <laughs>